we're going to be looking at the parable of the great banquet. So also, it's a great time to talk, continue to talk about friendship and community. Um, we had the church retreat this weekend, so um, we're going to continue to have that conversation and maybe kind of round out some of the edges that we've been um, going over with, um, with Brad. We talked about what it means to be a super friend, what it means to reconcile our conflicts with one another, and a few other topics. But today I want to try to um, have a conversation about what it really means to do life and follow Jesus with, with one another in community. And in particular, what are, what are some of the things that hold us back from reaching that ideal vision of community that we would like to see? What gets in the way of us reaching that? We're going to be looking at community and friendships in the micro sense, so friendships and small groups, but then also I think some of the things that Jesus has to say applies to maybe the macro sense, um, our church, or maybe even a little bit wider. So before we get started, um, let's, let's pray. So if you would join me. Lord, we, uh, we come to you, and we're thankful to be able to gather here, to get, gather here together today, and we ask that you would just, your spirit would dwell here, um, that your words um, would be my words, that people would hear what you want them to learn, um, not necessarily what I want them to learn. And we, do not, we just ask that you would help us learn more about friendship and community and um, how we can do that better. Amen. So just think about how amazing and mysterious it is that we've all come here today to worship a God that's very nature is relationship and community. The unending flow of giving and receiving between Father, Son, and Spirit, it's the pattern of our own reality. Now don't worry, this is not going to be a lecture on Trinitarian theology because, well, for one, I do not understand it. Um, <laughs> but I am really enamored by the mystery of it, and I'm intrigued by what it says about God, that God is fundamentally and essentially a relational being. And if we are truly created in that image of God, then it makes sense that we also would be such relational beings that long to be in connection with one another and also ultimately long to be in connection with God. St. Augustine put it best. He says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Read that one more time. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. I love that. It captures so so well the, this human condition, this longing, and this constant state of restlessness that we have for a relational connection. We grasp at anything and anyone to get it. And Augustine believes that the restlessness, this restlessness, it haunts us until we rest in God. I also think that, and that, this is not Augustine, but this is me, that because we're all made in the image of God, we can also find a partial antidote for some of that restlessness in other people. If nothing else, I think the fact that God is a relational being, a God's, at God's core, it must mean that relationships are really important, essential. You might even say that relationships both with God and with other people in our lives are the only ways in which we can fully realize ourselves, the only way that we can overcome our brokenness and receive healing and get a little closer to wholeness as individuals, but also as a community, a society, and I think ultimately the entire cosmos. It is precisely when we engage in meaningful, meaningful relationships with others, those who are like us and those who are seemingly the exact opposite of us, and everyone in between that we come to understand the vitality of these, of these friendships in our own humanity. So they're important. They tell us so much about, they tell us so much that Jesus, he tells a parable to emphasize their importance. 
So today's parable may be familiar to some of you. Um, And my hope is that as I read it today, you might uh, imagine yourself within the parable and ask yourself, which character or maybe characters do you relate to most? So let's take a look at it. It's from Luke 14, verses 15 through 24. And Jesus has been invited to, um, to eat at the house of a prominent religious leader. And he tells him this parable. Jesus says, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But then all alike, all alike they began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported to his master. Then the owner of this house became angry and ordered his servant. He says, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and, comp- and compel them to come in so that my house may be full. I, will, I, will, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. I love their excuses. I just got married. I can't come. I got to go see to the oxen that I have. That's <laughs> great. But I want to take a second to... Um, to try to put this parable and some of his characters and its ideas and phrases into context. And I think the first thing to note is that the certain man, the, the guy preparing the banquet, um, you know, he functions as both a metaphor for God and for Jesus and for us. And I like all good metaphors. They're great, but they also break down. They're not perfect. What's important to realize about this guy is that if, if in this first century context, if he was able to throw a party like this, he would, have been, um, he would have been wealthy. He would have been a man with, you might say, economic and social and political standing and status in the community. What, what is amazing is that the man actually goes through a transformation in the, in the parable. So he sets out to throw a party, and he only invites his peers, most likely people of similar social and economic status, probably people who look and talk and dress just like him. But when none of them shows up because of their excuses, he decides to do something quite radical and dangerous to his reputation and to his status. So by inviting the other people to the banquet, people that this society had deemed unimportant, the snubbed host, he would have have been issuing an insult to his own friends and his own family. But he has had a transformative moment, and their, their esteem, their approval, they no longer matter to him. He blatantly disregards their social standards and defies their social position. In verse 22, the servant has just gone out into the streets and he's brought in the people that the master has told him to, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and lame. And he says to the servant, he says to the man throwing the party, sir, what you have ordered has been done and there is still room. And so the master, he sends his servant back out to get even more people to come in. So usually this, this, um, this saying, there is still room, would have come after all the invited guests had come, but the invited guests never come. And so they invite the uninvited. Um, so when they, when they set down this path of inviting the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, 
they arrive and notice still there is room and set out to invite even more people. They arrive and, and notice that there is still room and set out to invite more people. I just said that. <laughs> Sorry. The master and the servants, they've started down this road of bringing such persons in, and there is no end to it. I think this is a metaphor for the divine economy that works throughout time. The mission of God seems to never be complete. God's grace is constantly moving out and inviting more and more people to the table where there is always a place for someone else. More than any of the Gospels, Luke, he's very particular with the details of his stories. He often refers to the paralyzed, the lame, the blind, or the deaf. And he's not choosing this arbitrarily. Um, he's He's choosing to use this because these physical defects in the parable because they, they've caused in this time period ritual uncleanliness. Meaning these people aren't just sick or suffering um, because of their ailments. They have been cast out to the margins of society. They have been told that there isn't just something physically wrong with them, but something spiritually wrong with them as well. They've been told they don't belong. Unfortunately, some of the religious people that Jesus was interacting with, they had some bad theology. You see, they were a community that, was, that had become concerned with purity, and therefore their community became concerned with um, keeping certain people out because of ritual taboos and bodily integrity. They wanted a, com- a community that was free of social impurities and outside influence. And for them, the paralyzed and the lame, the blind and the deaf, they represented impurities that they did not want inside the walls of their community. In our story today, Jesus, through the actions of the man throwing the party, shatters these boundaries. He flips the social and the religious and the economic standards upside down and says that everyone has a choice to attend God's party and to come to God's table. The parable of the great banquet is an image of the kind of party a Jesus-following community is to hold when it celebrates. The parable doesn't represent something that we are supposed to be waiting around for at the end times. I think God is calling us to create this banquet space now with our friends, with our communities, and with, uh, as a church as well. So to sum up this story, everyone is invited, particularly those who don't think they are invited, those who have nothing to offer, those who build buildings, and those who live in abandoned buildings, those who work 60 hours a week, and those who just can't catch a break. Everybody is invited to the body of Christ. We're also called, I think, as a body, as a community, as Jesus followers, to be in relationship with with each of the people that often gets deemed uninvited. So how does this parable help us in the challenge of friendship and community going forward? The first thing that jumps out to me as I'm reading this parable, as I was reading this parable, is that God is going out looking to bring people in. The man throwing the party invites his friends, and they don't show up. He could have just stayed in and sulked and watched Netflix, but he doesn't. For him, this moment is somehow a transformative moment, an, an epiphany moment, you may say, where he decides to go out of his house, his comforts, and the economic, social, and political boundaries that he was within to invite the people that were never invited in the first place to his party. I think this parable should make us consider how our friendships and families and small groups 
and as a church as a whole, we all have this potential of becoming something closed off to whoever we deem outsiders. We can easily end up with friends or workplaces, churches. Um, that, that, and when we look around, we can look and see a, a lot of people that look like us. I think rather the parable challenges us to move outward and to bring people into our family, our friend groups, communities, and this, maybe this church as a whole. Uh, reading this parable, it made me think of what Jesus says right after this. Um, he's talking about the cost of discipleship in Luke 14. And um, this is pretty, these are harsh words, and I like them. He says, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. It's pretty strong words, very complicated words. I don't want to dull them down necessarily. But it, it, the, the, the word hate that Jesus is using here, it, it doesn't necessarily mean hostility or anger. It, it indicates that if there is a conflict, a decision to be made, um, one's response to the demands of discipleship um, should take precedent over even the most sacred of human relationships. It's still a complicated and challenging command from Jesus, but there is, but I think what we can say, I, I think we can say this is true about Jesus. Jesus is definitely calling us to love our family and our friends and everyone else for that matter. That's, that's definitely clear. But I think what is also clear, and maybe some of us have even experienced this reality ourselves, is that Jesus also calls, to, calls us to a, a life of radical discipleship that may at times cause conflict within our families or our friend groups. And the parable, it shows us an ideal of the type of community that we, we're striving to create within our families. Or sorry, that we're striving to create. And I think our families and our friends and our small groups they're all microcosms of community where we get to sort of practice for how we are to interact with our neighbors, our society, and the world at large. Within our friend groups, we learn things like how to love one another better or how to reconcile conflicts with each other. We also can build one another up through encouragement. Sometimes we've got to call each other out and hold each other accountable. Therefore, you might say that our friends and friend groups are schools of formation where we learn to embody virtues, like, for example, selfless love. In an ideal world, right, we would be friends with someone just for the sake of it, not because of what we also get in return from the friendship. I have a friend, you might even say a best friend, uh, hopefully he doesn't listen to this sermon, but uh, <laughs> he, he hasn't always reciprocated our friendship equally. And we've, we've had this conversation, so it's okay to put it out there. But for a long time, I've sort of poured myself out to him and not really felt like he's returned the friendship to me equally. And I've wrestled with what to do about this. But the truth is that what it has really taught me what it is, is that it's revealed to me my own limitations to love and to give selflessly. It's also re revealed to me this deep longing I have to be in an unconditional, selfless relationship that my closest friends my f and or family they're just not capable of giving me. So in a sense, our experiences in communities, they can be like schools that train us, sometimes break us down and build us back up as people more equipped to go out. We engage with our friends and in, and in communities, not to create groups of people that are really awesome and closed off to the world, but so that we can go out and invite people in, grow our communities, and may even make the world a more beautiful place. The next challenge that Jesus raises is pretty, 
It's pretty challenging. Um, I think that in the parable of great banquet, God is inviting people on the margins, people that don't usually get invited into the table, into his community. Therefore, it seems that Jesus is suggesting here is pretty clear that we are to do likewise. For me, this is challenging. Think about the last five people on your phone um, that you texted or called. You don't have to actually get out your phones. You can if you want. But just think about who are those, the last five people that you've interacted with through a text or a call. Are they different from you? Are they a different race? Are they from another country? Are they a similar age? Are they a similar religious distinction? Are they in the same socioeconomic class that you are in? And if you said yes to all those, well, first of all, good job. But ask yourselves, are they a Dallas Cowboys fan? <laughs> or maybe this week, are they a Patriots fan? And still, and still, if you said yes to all of that, ask, are they of a different political persuasion or affiliation than you? That seems to be the tough one, right? For me, and I believe me, with all of those as well. Just recently, my wife and I, we went on a little vacation before my classes started back up. We went with two other couples. And the guys are two of my closer friends at seminary. So of the 150 people in my class that I could have become friends with, um, I became friends with people that are the same age as me. They graduated the same year out of college. They're both married. They're both white. They are both pretty similar when it comes to our political leanings. And um, although we are denominationally different, we're pretty close theologically. I think it's, uh, it's pretty easy to be friends with people who are similar to us, that are like-minded. In fact, it's literally the basis of, fr- of relationships, right? We have common interests, experiences, passions, etc. All of that was what creates a friendship. Our default is to gravitate towards people that are similar to us. And let me be clear, I am not suggesting that that is a bad thing or that Jesus is suggesting that either. But Jesus' mandate in the parable of the great banquet is not to be content with the people who naturally gravitate to our dinner tables, but to go out, to interact, to get to know, to become friends with, and invite people who, in, who are different than us, and especially those who are on the margins of society. The man throwing the party, he, he came to this re- realization. It was so important, he came, he came to the realization, that, and it was so important to him that he sacrificed his comfort and risked his economic and social status by inviting the uninvited. He expanded his friend group, his family, and ultimately all who was welcome around his table. It's pretty clear that God desires the the church as a whole to be diverse, truly diverse in every way. And the disciples of Jesus are a perfect example. So you have Simon the Zealot, who who believes that the Jews should rise up um, and and, and through military force, take, um, take out the Roman Empire, right? And on the other hand, you have um, Matthew, who's a tax collector, who through his job, he's benefiting financially from the Romans' occupation and the unfair taxing of the Jewish people. These people are, Simon and, and Matthew are literally mortal enemies in this context. But Jesus called these guys to be his disciples, to share his dinner table, and to become some of his closest friends. He also called them to be friends with each other. It wasn't an accident. He intentionally sought out people that would have been mortal enemies and invited them to his table. Also, and I think this is really important, especially when you have conversations about diversity, 
In the end, when God begins to call the world to judgment and reconcile all the cosmos, all the beautiful distinctions, like race and ethnicity, everything that makes us all uniquely beautiful and distinct people, it doesn't get washed away. It's not as if in the end we all end up the same. Revelation 7 says, And there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hand. They cried out in a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. I love that image. Diversity, true diversity of nation, tribe, language, all different types of people are proclaiming God's salvation and God is welcoming, welcoming them all to the, to the foot of his throne. The parable of the great banquet reminds us that we aren't supposed to separate one another into clean and unclean, welcome and unwelcome, saint and sinners. And remembering Jesus' parable, it should inspire us to tear down the walls that we put up between one another and motivate us to go out and welcome those who are different and on the margins into our midst. The parable also shows us that friendship and community isn't just about getting together and doing spiritual stuff. Jesus shows us that friendship and community are equally about enjoying life together through eating, drinking, and even partying. In fact, I think Jesus, he would have found these distinctions that we put between something like the sacred and the profane or the spiritual and the unspiritual quite silly. Um, Jesus didn't see these distinctions, and the evidence is pretty much everywhere in the Gospels. Someone has said about the, the book of Luke that Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. I guess he's just hungry all the time. <laughs> he's, uh, yeah, but I think what, what it really indicates is that what Jesus was doing, he was doing life with people. He was meeting them where they were at, sharing meals with them. And he didn't see these distinctions between the spiritual and unspiritual. They're modern distinctions that don't exist in his mind. So for example, your small groups shouldn't just be about getting together and doing really serious Bible study. In fact, I'm willing to bet your small group will be a much deeper and more transformative experience if you eat together, play a game together, laugh together, just as much, if not more, than you sit down to do really serious Bible study. So as you go forth from this place and interact with those who are like you and those who are different from you, I want you to remember a few things that might help us experience and embrace and contribute more to our friendships and the growth of the communities we are a part of. The first thing, I think the parable of the great banquet, it represents this ideal that we are, we are to strive for. I don't think it is an ideal that we can't achieve, but nonetheless, it is still an ideal. Maybe you had an ideal experience with friends or a community that's actually getting in the way of your friendships now and the engagement you take part in in a larger community. For example, maybe you are new to the city. People here, just, they're just not as cool as your friends where you came from. It's not just about the coolness, though, right? It's about the intimacy and the deep connection that you had with people that you were afraid of not finding in someone else or some other community. So maybe you're holding on to this experience in a small group that was just amazing. It was clicking on all cylinders, and, and you're holding on to that vision of the ideal, and it is keeping you from fully engaging in the small groups you're in now. I have experienced this. After I graduated from college, 
I stayed around in Indianapolis for a year and participated in something called the Kingdom Living Training School. It's a um, mouthful. And it was essentially a year-long class. It's a community that is walking together for a year. And it was designed originally to train and equip people to do like missions or plant a church. Um, but it also became just available for anyone that just kind of wanted to push into their, to their relationship with Jesus and, and take that more seriously. Um, it was easily the best community that I have ever experienced. I felt known and I knew others more deeply and intimately than I really till this day um, still, have, still ever have. And for a long time, and even sometimes still, my experience within that, it, it kind of sometimes keeps me from fully engaging with the people around me, my friends, and my community at large. So Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he has this quote, and I think he really sums up this idea really well. He says, he who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Don't let your dreams, this is me now, don't let your dreams of what you want, your friendships, your community, and this church to look like getting in the way of how much you pour yourself into those relationships. The last two things I want to mention, they are closely connected. They are this idea of, one, seeking continuity between our beliefs and actions and transparency for if and definitely when we do not achieve that continuity. What makes Jesus awesome and an amazing figure and teacher and so captivating as a leader is that his teachings and what he was calling people to do, he was doing himself. Those things aligned. Take, for example, the great banquet. It's a parable that is encouraging people there, listening to him to invite people to their dinner tables that would have caused great harm to their standing in the community. But what is amazing about Jesus is that he doesn't just sit on a mountainside and pontificate about what other people should do. He lives it out. Various places in the Gospels, he's accused by religious leaders of eating and drinking with sinners, tax collectors, and the others that the elite at the time had deemed unwelcome. In some ways today, I've been preaching a little bit to the choir. <laughs> it's actually really funny to actually use that phrase, and it's, you guys aren't the choir, but I am actually preaching. Anyways. <laughs> um, but I know that this church community and the individuals here, I know that this community cares deeply about, what, um, about trying to live out What's what Jesus is calling us to in the parable of the great banquet. And still, I think Jesus is calling us to consider where our blind spots may be. Where are our rough edges that we, continue to, that we can continue to smooth out together when it comes to seeking to live out the parable of the great banquet? Maybe we need to tear down the walls we use to divide ourselves up. Maybe we're not keeping certain people out, per se, but we're keeping people at a safe distance. Or where in our friendships can we look to grow in diversity in all the different ways? And this is where the transparency comes in. The reality is that we aren't Jesus, and thank God for that, because he had to eat a lot of food, although that might be appealing to some of you. Um, that was a bad dad joke. I got one laugh. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> thank you. Um, she knows them when she sees them, yeah. Although, maybe this is, um, 
But we aren't Jesus, so more times than not, our beliefs and our actions, they don't align. Um, And we need to be honest and transparent and humble about this, right? As a wider community, as a wider church community, but also as individuals um, in our personal friendships, we need to be quick to be honest and vulnerable and even quicker to ask for forgiveness. I think that I think that if we can remember our past experiences, but maybe not hold too tightly to them as some ideal where we can never get back to, we might be able to engage fully in community now. Also, I think if we seek continuity in our beliefs and actions and transparency for when those don't align, we can inch ever closer to realizing the parable of the great banquet in all aspects of our lives. So as you leave this place, I want, one thing, I want you to remember one thing. First and foremost, that you are invited to the table with Jesus. The table is set for us, and there will always be a seat open for you. Maybe, but he also wants us to um, invite our friends, our neighbors, and even our enemies. Jesus wants sinner and saint to come and sit on your right and on your left. Even more, I think Jesus desires us that we live the type of radical lifestyle here and now, not just in a life to come. This is something we can do, and by doing so, we bring something of the kingdom to earth here and now. We experience a foretaste of God's coming kingdom through embodying the great banquet amongst our friends and neighbors here and now. If you pray with me, we'll close. Jesus, we thank you for this space to gather together. We ask that you would continue to push us as a community and as individuals um, to think about what it means for us to live out the great banquet in our lives. We ask that you would um, show us our blind spots and show us as a community and as individuals where we can continue to grow. And um, we ask just for the courage and your spirit to give us the power to do all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Hey, if you're on the worship team, if you go ahead and make your way forward and get ready to lead the church. And also, I know we have a team that prayed before the service because I interrupted them this morning.